you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word and the Word made flesh, for the bread and the bread of life. May this Word be seed to us who sow and bread to us who eat. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to return to our hero this morning uh, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Um, last time we, uh, we were in the Gospel of Mark, uh, we have left Jesus in his Galilean phase of his ministry. Um, I, I love the geography of Israel um, because it's just so simple. Um, on one side you have a straight line and on the other side you have a curved line. Um, even geographically challenged people like myself can kind of grasp that. And then you have the north and the south. And in the north, you have the Sea of Galilee. In the south, you have the Dead Sea. And you have the Jordan River that connects them. Super simple. Um, I often like to call the book of maps the last chapter of the Bible. So if you have Bibles with the last chapter, as you should, you can turn to the book of maps and you can see Jesus in the north around the Sea of Galilee. This is his hometown. All right, this actually becomes a little important later on in the story, as we'll discuss. Jerusalem is south. Uh, Jerusalem is kind of the center of gravity um, of, the, of the Jewish people, um, politically and spiritually, uh, which at that time are kind of overlapping ideas. Jesus is born in Nazareth uh, and in Lower Galilee and spends a lot of his first phase of his ministry, of course, teaching around that area. Um, and, uh, and now we'll see him in chapter 7 being confronted by, uh, says, the Pharisees and some scribes from Jerusalem. Okay, so you see something's going on here. Now, first of all, I just want to set some context because these are really important groups of people. Um, the, there's a lot of diversity in the Jewish community at the time of Jesus, much more than there would be decades later. At the time of Jesus, you may, if you're familiar a little bit with the New Testament, maybe some of these names sound familiar to you, even if you don't know who they are exactly, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Herodians and the, there, um, there are others in, that aren't necessarily mentioned by name in the New Testament, but maybe you've heard of the Essenes, you know, for the, that, that lived um, on the Dead Sea and the, the the uh, Qumran caves, and, and there, there are a lot of groups. There, there are people who are affiliated with various schools of thought or various political frameworks, and sometimes uh, they're overlapping. And then you just have general ordinary people who don't belong to any of these groups. All right, so I just want to start to kind of clarify a little bit of this because it helps us understand these difficult conversations that Jesus has. Now, the... Um, the Pharisees, if you look in your concordance of your Bible, another important chapter, uh, another important uh, book of the Bible is the concordance. If you look up Pharisees, um, you will not find any references to the Old Testament. So where do they come from? Uh, a little bit of biblical history here is you have, you know, of course, uh, you have the beginning of the Jewish people with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then they go into slavery, and Moses brings them out, and they have this period of time where they're just judged by judges, but then Israel cries out for kings, and God grants their request, okay? And this starts the great era of the kings, right? First king is Saul, and then his son David, the greatest of all kings, and then Solomon, the wise, 
but things don't go very well. The train kind of falls off the tracks. The kingdom is split into two kingdoms. And then you get the good king, bad king kind of scenario in the Old Testament. That's really hard to remember. But eventually, uh, they really never do get their act together, and they get kicked out of the pool. All right, they get thrown out of, of Israel, all right, in two parts. The final part comes in 587. They get kicked out of Israel for good. This is about 550 years before Christ or so. All right, and then during that time, there's just a bunch of kind of poor people. Because this is what the Babylonians would do. And when they would conquer a land, they would leave, they would take the cream of the crop, so to speak, and they would leave the poor people, and then they'd intermarry. That's where you get the Samaritans. The Samaritans are kind of Jewish, but kind of intermarried, and they develop their own tradition, and that's why you find this kind of tension. All right? But then uh, something amazing happens, something that was really incredible. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Greeks come in, and the Romans come in, and there's all this political uh, machination going on. Well, uh, these Greeks and Romans bring in pagan rulers, and, and uh, they start to kind of squash the Jewish people. And the Jewish people don't like to be squashed because they're God-fearers. They're not idol worshipers. All right? And uh, this kind of creates all kinds of negative energy around Israel. There's all kinds of tension. And, uh, and there's a rebellion that happens a couple hundred years before Jesus. All right? This is the great Maccabean Revolt. Um, it's where we get the festival of Hanukkah that Jesus actually would have celebrated. Um, and so for about 180 years, Israel is self-governed. This is just before the time of Jesus. And that, this is why this is important. When you start to have to govern yourself, what's the first thing you do? You start to argue. All right. Okay, yeah, you shoot off the fireworks and you have your 4th of July picnic. But basically, you're just arguing all the time about how this should be done. All right. Uh, that's what was happening in Israel. As soon as they start to, to govern themselves, of course, you've got differences of opinion about how that should happen. That's where you start to find the organization of these schools of thought, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and there are the Essenes. And they're all have, they all have very strong differences of opinion about how things ought to be done. All right? And it's very interesting to follow these groups. But that's why in the New Testament you have these groups of people starting to organize around Jesus because Jesus is catalytic. He, he's a change agent. He's saying things that are upsetting to some people, particularly those that have very strong opinions because Jesus doesn't fit in any of these boxes. So it's important for us to try to capture the the energy that's around Jesus and why these people keep popping up with these tough questions for him because they don't like what they're seeing. Jesus is threatening the status quo, not just the status quo, but the multiple status quos that there are. There actually, there is no status quo. There are just this, this web of, of, of difficult uh, differences of opinion and people trying to capture the popular consent. That's all going to come to a screeching halt in the year 70 after Jesus dies, after Paul dies, when the Romans crush the temple in Jerusalem. And then actually it's the Pharisaic tradition that outlives the rest 
and is the basis for what we know of Talmudic Judaism, which carries forward to this day. So it's really helpful for us to kind of understand that the Pharisees have a particular point of view, okay? And the scribes have a particular point of view. And, um, and it's very different than the Sadducees. The Pharisees, you know, I grew up in the Baptist church, which I love. I love the Baptist tradition, but they're like the Bible Baptists, right? They're, they're, the, guy, they're the Bible guys, the Pharisees. What I mean by that is they want to help Israel, right, obey the Bible every day in daily life. The Sadducees are priests. That's why you don't really run into too many Sadducees until Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And the Sadducees really don't like him because he's creating problems with Rome and he's upsetting their power base. Different sermon, different story. But you'll find that Jesus really has very little in common with the Sadducees. His, his conversations with them are short and they're pointed. He spends a lot more time with the Pharisees. And there's a reason why. It's because Jesus has more in common with the Pharisees, as it turns out. And the Pharisees are picking on Jesus because they don't like what they would say is his interpretation of things. Now, this sets up this question about these purity laws, all right, and the traditions of the elders. Now, if you remember, the Pharisees start to kind of form together a couple hundred years before Jesus. And so just like, you know, we have family traditions, like every family celebrates Christmas a little bit differently, Okay, the, the Pharisees start to develop traditions. Now, why is that? It's because there's a period of time when the prophetic word stops in Israel. It, it, the, the era of the great prophets is coming to closure. You don't have prophets in the same way that you did at one time in Israel's history. Very interestingly, after Israel gets put into uh, exile, they start to come back. And do you know the two books that are associated with their return are Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are in the uh, court system. They're highly placed Jewish people in Babylon. And they are given permission uh, by uh, Cyrus to return to Israel and to start to rebuild the temple. Very interestingly... Uh, they start to lose a little bit of grasp of the old Hebrew language. And that's why in Ezra, there's a really important thing that happens. They rebuild the temple and they read the Torah to the people. It's a very powerful account for a lot of reasons, but you can read all about it. But you'll find that as the Torah is being read, there are interpreters that are speaking Aramaic to the people so that it can be understood. That's the origin of the scribe. In other words, you start to find in Israel's history a reliance on the word and its interpretation. All right, this is where these traditions begin to emerge about how do we take the Torah, which we've been practicing in exile, like how do you even do that? By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion, says the psalmist. They had to learn how to be a people apart from the temple. They had to learn how to interpret the word away from the sacrificial system. Now they bring that back into Israel and they start to say, well, 
How do we keep this again? Well, what did Rabbi so-and-so say? What did great smart scholar so-and-so say? How did your community do it where you were doing it? Okay, because as you will know from our reading from Deuteronomy, it's no small thing to obey the word of God. This was their covenant responsibility as Jewish people. And so it's very serious for them when God says to do something that it's done rightly. But how? These are the things that start to create the traditions of the elders. But as Jesus is going to start to point out, there's a fatal flaw in this whole enterprise. Now you'll see that the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes that come up from Jerusalem, now here's a danger point, right? They're starting to hear about Jesus in Jerusalem. That's not good. It's not good. Because that's where the power people are. And you don't want to be on their radar screen. Like, I don't want my boss's boss's boss to know who I am. You know, something's wrong if that guy knows who Steve Engstrom is, unless I sell a really big deal, right? Um, if I ask for more than two weeks of vacation, my boss's boss needs to approve. Guess how much vacation I will not be taking, right? No more than two weeks. Not because he wouldn't approve it, because it just makes me nervous, <laughs> right? And now, of course, Jesus is not the nervous type. Um, he will be taking on the Jerusalem leadership head on um, very shortly. But you can see they're getting wind of something. And the Pharisees are compliance people. They're saying, we don't like the way your disciples are doing it. Now, notice they don't pick on Jesus. They pick on his disciples. This is a leadership issue. They're saying, you're not taking care of business with your people. And these traditions have to do with cleanliness laws, ritual washings. I won't go into all of that. That's kind of esoteric. Uh, there actually weren't these kinds of requirements upon the Jewish people. Um, there, this is something that comes out of Jewish interpretation at the time. And by the way, there was a lot of disagreement among Jewish people at this time. It wouldn't be for another generation or two before ritual purity washing was more common among the Pharisees. Right now, not everybody's even in agreement about this kind of stuff. Um, but they see. And that's what, that's what a fear-based kind of approach to religion does. It makes you compliance-oriented. It makes you watchful about where the rules are being challenged. And it, it tells you something about where the Pharisees' headspace is. They're compliance people. Now, Jesus, um, uh, we, we have some interesting things going on here with respect to Mark. We get a lot of editorial comments here, which is kind of interesting to me. Mark is not happy with this. All right, it, it's not, Mark just doesn't even try to say this is what Jesus was thinking. He just kind of comes in there and he says, they got all these rules and this is their traditions. You can tell he's kind of peeved and, and irritated. All right, so Mark doesn't like this. And this gives you a little idea of the inner world of the disciples. Because Mark is written, you know, several years after the account here, probably 20 years afterwards. And you can tell, you know, he remembers this and he's upset. Um, I want to make one note on this comment in chapter 7, verse 3, where he says, all the Jews. Mark is talking about the Jewish leadership, especially. They're, they're the ones that are, are really in, in question here. And the nature of the question is really this. What is essential? 
what are the essential attributes of Torah? I, I use the word Torah to, which is the Hebrew word for law, simply because law is kind of can have a more negative connotation. Torah means instruction. It's God's ways. And the question is, what are the essential attributes of God's ways? Well, for the Pharisees, the, the way that it comes to them through the traditions of the elders is that what shapes our identity as a community is what pleases God. That's the primary question. What pleases God is what they're asking. And, and that question is what drives their sense of identity. We are the people who please God. And it drives their actions. Here's what we do to please God. We are the people who please God. And here's what we do to please God. Our identity and our actions. This is kind of transactional. I don't even think it's the right question. And that's what Jesus is showing here, is that there's a whole orientation to the Jewish people's relationship with God that's off base. It's pointed in the wrong direction. It's asking the wrong question. It sounds like the right question. I mean, it is important to know what pleases God. It's not a wrong question. It's just not the right question fundamentally. I think a better question for capturing what Jesus is trying to uh, focus on here is what restores the broken relationship? That's the question. Not what pleases God, but what restores the broken relationship because that was the original problem in the Garden of Eden. The original problem was the broken relationship. There's actually a very important scripture passage which I, I want to refer to here from Exodus chapter 15. It's called the Song of Moses. You may recall that after the great Exodus event where God rescues and liberates the Jewish people from Egypt, Moses and Miriam sing songs. And Moses' song ends with this, which is a very important passage. Moses sings before the people to God, you will bring them in. You will plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. There are a few passages that so clearly articulate the story that we're living Adam and Eve were displaced from that mountain and that place of the Lord. And Moses captures a sight in his song of what the enterprise is that we're on. God will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. That's the controlling metaphor of Scripture. It's the return to the mountain of God, the place where he resides. And you can see that in our psalm this morning, Psalm 15. Who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? Psalm 24 adds this uh, as well. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Israel. The hill of the Lord is a metaphor for the place where God dwells, where we see his face. 
That's the ultimate destiny of every person is to see the face of God. And so in the Old Testament, the expectation begins to build over time that there is actually one coming who is able to ascend that mountain. Because what Israel is learning over and over again is they can't make it all the way up. They try and fail over and over again. And the prophets begin to capture a sense of this failure that cannot be the last word. They begin to say to Israel, there's one coming, surely, who can do this on our behalf. The question of how the mountain of, the God, of God will be ascended is unanswered in the Old Testament except to say that there is one coming who will do it on behalf of Israel. I think of what Abraham said on Mount Moriah when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac. God himself will provide the lamb and we're waiting. You can see now why the Pharisees were just dialed into such a different channel. They're not asking the question of who can ascend the mountain of the Lord because we just can't. They're self-confident that they've already arrived. They have the temple in Jerusalem. They're God's people. Now let's just be compliant. But Jesus is frustrating this whole enterprise and he's saying that's not what's happening. So Jesus is very careful there not to confuse people. He's not saying, and he never does say, we don't care about pleasing God. Remember what Peter will say in his letter, we are to be holy as God himself is holy. That expectation is never removed on God's people. The key issue is the heart. And that's what he says in Isaiah. The heart is far from me. That is what God has been after all this time. Not compliance, the heart. And the prophets of the Old Testament were especially focused on this issue. For them, reform did not mean doing the religion better. It, mean, it meant returning to the relationship that has been lost. And that is what Jesus focuses on here. It's the heart. It's the heart that is the source of identity. In, in, in Jewish terms, the heart is a broad concept. It's not just the emotions. It includes the emotions, but it's really your identity. It's your will. It's your affections. It's what you love. The heart is the heart of the matter, says Jesus. That's always been the most precious thing to God. It's always been at the heart of the enterprise. That's why the worst possible condition in the Old Testament, and even now, is a hard heart. That's the worst thing you can have. It's the thing that draws out God's emotion more than any other thing is when Israel's heart becomes hard and when they have a stiff neck, a lack of humility. A hard heart and a stiff neck are insurmountable. It's what the Old Testament way of saying narcissism. These are insurmountable. A hard heart and a stiff neck are the source of all evil. And we can see it in this this thing called Corban, which I won't, I don't want to take too much time in that, but here's the deal with Corban. All right, it's hard to understand this thing. All right, this has to do with vows. 
In the ancient world, vows were exceptionally important. Like, you could not break a vow. They're, it's hard for us to understand just how serious they were. There are times when uh, you would get, come into wealth or you would want to uh, take a portion of your wealth and you would want to declare it or make a vow that this belongs to God. That vow becomes unbreakable. But the problem with vows is that you end up promising more than you can give. All right, and here's the unintended consequence. You may vow a portion of your wealth to God as a gift uh, and not realize that you may need it later on down the line to take care of your family. All right, and you get put in a bind where uh, you have made this vow and, and now you're not able to achieve uh, the purpose of, of another responsibility. You have twin or competing uh, uh, priorities here. Now, there's something even a little bit more nefarious here, and that's that it, it seems that the Pharisees were using this as a loophole to say, I'm going to declare a part of my wealth as a vow to God, but I'll benefit from it. Rather than giving it to, say, my parents to, in support of them, I'll derive some sort of benefit from this asset because really it belongs to God, but I get a little bit of comfort out of it. That sort of thing. All right, so... You know, what Jesus was saying is this is not the spirit of Torah. It's a similar kind of argument that, you know, do you save a life on Sabbath? Well, of course you do. We don't work on the Sabbath, but you do work if a life is at stake. Every Jewish person would agree with that. It's the same kind of principle here. Jesus is saying, look, all your traditions have heaped up on people these competing uh, priorities that obscure the face and character of God. God didn't care about your vows and, and your loopholes. What he cares about is that you honor your parents. But now Jesus really wants to bring it home and he wants to gather his people around him. And I just love how decisive Jesus is. Jesus is so vigorous in this passage. There's not one split second where Jesus is confused, where he's, he's perplexed, where he's blindsided, he's just so good. He, he has no second thoughts about what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And these Pharisees and these scribes from Jerusalem, they don't make him sweat at all. He's the perfect shepherd of his flock. He knows exactly when the wolf in sheep's clothing emerges and there's decisive action on behalf of the vulnerable. I love that. He gathers his people around them. And he says, look, people, don't be confused by all of this stuff. I'm not actually really all that concerned about that. What I'm concerned about is the heart. And the heart, as prophet Jeremiah says, is deceitfully wicked. Do you know that passage in Jeremiah? The heart is above all things desperately wicked. That's the problem. And Jesus says, that's what I care about here. I don't care about all these things. I care about this. I care about your heart. And it is actually quite remarkable um, that you have this other parenthetical statement from Mark creeping in here again. And it's very clear. He says, thus he declared all foods clean. Now, I have to be honest, when I read this passage for the first time, that is the verse that struck me the hardest. 
Do you know why? Thus he declared all foods clean. The reason that strikes me the hardest is because, I mean, nobody says that about Torah. It was God who made the food laws, by the way. That, that wasn't a tradition of the elder on this course. It would actually take years before the Jewish followers of Jesus could appropriate this. Like, this, this subject about what to eat and not eat doesn't get solved easily. There are four or five different places in the New Testament where the disciples are like, wait a second. What does this mean? But we see now that this is what the Jewish people were astounded by when they said he teaches with authority. That means he's self-referential. He's not asking what the traditions say. He just says, I say unto you. Jesus is the one who has authority because he is the word of God. And Mark has already shown us that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of creation who calms storms. He's the king of the kingdom who casts out demons and heals people. And now this, somehow, Mark is showing us that Jesus is the one around whom the quest to restore the broken relationship is beginning to center. Because only he is able to solve the problem of the heart, which Mark does not solve in this passage. He just points it out. So now I want to make it kind of personal as we bring this to an end. The Pharisees were asking, how can I please God? I think the, the more existential question that we often feel is really this one, which is, how can I reach God? How can I reach God after I've been thrown out of the garden? How can I reach God when my heart is just desperately wicked, and I know it. How can I reach God when he seems forever out of reach? The psalmist has told us that God can be reached on his holy mountain by only those with a clean, hand, clean hands and a pure heart. Now the Pharisees come along and they say, we're already here, we've already arrived, we already have a temple, we have a covenant. Now we just have to please God. But Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and deceptively wicked. That's what Israel's history shows. You know, what Israel awaits is the transformation of the heart. And this is what God promises. This is the, the hinge that this passage turns on, that God himself provides all the washing and all the cleansing, and all the heart cure. Here's how the prophet Ezekiel says it in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 27. You can hear resonance with our passage in 7, Mark 7. Ezekiel says, well, God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. A totally different direction 
And God does this in a way that nobody could have imagined but God himself. God reaches us. Jesus is saying to his people, you can't reach God, but God can reach you. And here I am. I am God in the flesh. I am God made flesh, a human like you, because on your behalf, I can ascend to the mountain of the Lord and I can bring you with me. Only God could have developed that or imagined that. God says, if you put your trust in me, I will take you with me to where I am. And that's the difference. It's trust. It's the expression of a tender heart and a neck that bends in repentance. The cross that Mark is moving us to in the gospel story is the answer to the question because that's where we see, yes, it's true. When I look at the cross, I know my heart is deceptively wicked and I hang my head. But there also I see what God is doing for me because he loves me. And with a tender heart, we repent and we believe. Mark is showing us that Jesus is the center. He isn't like the scribes and the Pharisees. He isn't deceptive. He isn't wicked. This morning, I encourage us to have a tender heart. Have a soft neck. Let's repent and put our trust in him, and he will show you how the stones in your own heart can be removed. He's the fullest expression of the will of God who went to all this trouble gladly to rescue us and bring us in and plant us on his own mountain, the sanctuary that his hands have established, well, where he will reign forever and ever. Would you join with me in prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, as we surrender to you as Lord of our lives, draw us ever closer to you. Show us where we may harbor resistance to your lordship or rejection of your will. And bring us into the greater joy of the abundant life and relationship with you that you desire for me. Give me a heart of flesh and take the heart of stone, now and forever, through your holy name. Amen.